Does that intro music remind you of Walkmans and, and leg warmers or what? Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm Michael Cullen. I will be your host this evening for what we call a Metzian podcast, uh, episode 2018, end of season roundtable. Uh, without further ado, let me bring on my friends and co co partners in this thing we call a podcast. Sam, Sam Maxwell, how are you, sir? Well, I am. Uh, this is fitting. Uh, just as we're starting this podcast, I am uh, arriving on the Jackie Robinson Parkway. So, uh, on location, boys. Well, <laughs> welcome back in town. Uh, you know what? Let's get into some shameless plugs. What else do you do? I know you have a side project. Out with it. Uh, well, uh, speaking of Jackie Robinson, I want to make an HBO-style TV series about Brooklyn and the Dodgers. I have a podcast that I do uh, for that. It has been on hiatus lately, but it's uh, Bedford and Sullivan, Brooklyn. Uh, you can look it up, the podcast, as well as the Facebook page uh, under those. I am Converted Mets fan, uh, convertedmetsfan.blogspot.com, getting back into the swing of things. And uh, I'm a screenwriter and filmmaker, like I said about the Dodger Project, and that spills over outside of baseball as well. So Nice. Our next partner in crime, Rich, Rich Sparago. How are you, sir? Give us a little bit of, of a bio about yourself. It's been a while since we did that for our listeners. I know you're a Beatles fan extraordinaire. Take it away, my friend. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, I met Fan Rich on Twitter, and uh, so what would I say for a bio? Well, um, yeah, Beatles fanatic, basically. Um, also have this incredible obsession with the weather. I've actually done quite a bit of weather blogging for a local TV station. Uh, so I, I'm really into that. You know, been a Mets fan for a long time, and, um, you know, and here we are. You know, I go back, my fandom goes back to the early 70s, first real memories, the 73 season. And, um, you know, it, it, it's always a bittersweet day when the season ends and you're not in the playoffs, so I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. But thanks for the opportunity to do a little self-introduction. haven't been blogging much lately. Um, I'm with ESNY, but haven't put anything up in a couple of months. It's been a... A little bit of a writing drought. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce our featured guest this evening. On behalf of Sam and Rich, I'd like to introduce you folks to John Coppinger. Uh, a lot of you may know him as Metstradamus. John, welcome to the show. And likewise, why don't you spend a couple of moments telling us what you do, where you do it, and, and why you do it, because I know you're a passionate Mets fan. So take it away, John, and welcome. Well, th- well, first off, thank you guys for uh, for having me back. Um, and it's been it's been too long, and that's my fault. Uh, I am on Twitter at Metstradamus, which is easy enough, and you can find my nonsense at um, at MetstradamusBlog.com. Uh, the season is in fact over, but uh, you know I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully a fruitful off season. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've been a Met fan since, uh, since my father took me to Shea for a Tom Seaver start in 1976. And unbelievably enough, I kind of remember it. Uh, and, uh, so my fandom goes back that long and, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be, uh, many more years to come and hopefully this team won't kill me. Nice. Although I think they will. <laughs> Eventually they will. Something will. Yes. Most likely yes. Let's jump right into David Wright. That's the way we left off last podcast, gentlemen. Uh, I myself, I said I wanted something, or I was looking forward to something special. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it is that I I wanted, but 
I knew I, I it had to it had to be special. I, I wanted something uh, organic, you know, not something contrived. And I'll just say, mission accomplished. As far as I'm concerned, it was special. I think it was even perfect. So, John, your impressions of David Wright night? Well, I was lucky enough to be there. I, I had uh, tickets uh, from my plan, so uh, and I was uh, so when it landed on that day, I was very happy that I didn't have to spend a hundred dollars to go. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was a nice night. I thought it was a little weird, not the night itself, but the way everything was kind of scripted, like, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. So we knew, okay, after two at bats, he's going to be taken out on, on the field. So it didn't, it, it didn't seem spontaneous. It seemed like, okay, we all knew what was coming. And, uh, I, uh, I, I was the only disappointment for me was that the Mets couldn't finish that game in a timely manner. But, uh, but we, we, we stayed until the end. And, uh, I thought, I thought it was really nice and really simple. I think David probably wanted it to be simple. And it was just, you know, listen, not every athlete gets to go out like that. And not to say that Wright didn't, uh, didn't get, not to say that Wright got everything he deserved, you know, because we, we all talk about how it should have been more. There should have been more to his career. It, it ended too soon. But a lot of athletes' careers end in their living room when they don't get a phone call for the next spring training, or it ends in a manager's office when they get cut from spring training. You know, David Wright didn't get everything he deserved or wanted, but he got to end his career and we got to end his career with us saying thank you to him. And I, and I think that's the, really the least you can ask for. And I don't think David can retire. I don't think David should retire with any regrets because he gave it, he gave it his all. And uh, the one thing he really deserved was that night and he got it. And I'm glad he got it. Rich, before I go to you, I want to throw this at you and you take, you take uh, this conversation where you will. He's only the third Met to retire or the, or the third player to retire as a Met. A, a career met Ed Cranpool and Ron Hodges. They're the only two people to speak of. David Wright is the third. Wow. Rich. You, you know, it says something, doesn't it? It says something about how the game has evolved. And let's face it, the Mets only have, only in quotes, have 57 years of existence. So it's not like, you know, the 1920s when guys seldom change teams, or at least seldom by today's standards. So it speaks to the Mets uh, being a, you know, still a, as franchises go on the fairly young side. Um, and also it speaks to a lot of things. You know, it speaks to the fact that the Mets traditionally have not wanted to fork over big bucks when guys became eligible for free agency and, you know, think strawberry. Uh, you know, you could think of a lot of others. And it, it's, it speaks to that. You know, and I, too, like John, was fortunate enough to be at the game. It was part of my ticket plan as well. I'm sure we have the same plan, John. And, um, yeah. And, you know, the whole night was scripted. Nothing, Mike, unfortunately, you were spot on by saying you were hoping something organic happened. Nothing really organic happened. He got a one-hopper, you know, room service hop to make a play, and, you know, two at-bats that will never go down as his best. But everything was scripted, and here's what I'm going to say. Hats off to the Mets because, like, we we criticize them a lot, but they did this right. You know, with him coming out alone, kicking third base, Reyes gave, you know, Reyes then came out with him. They hugged. When he was taken out, he had his moment. I love the way the last thing you saw 
was him going down the club, the dugout stairs into the clubhouse one last time and officially exiting his playing career. So the scripting, I guess you would call it somewhat necessary for an event of that nature. Um, it was scripted well. Unfortunately, he didn't hit a home run. He didn't have an RBI, but so be it. Those are things you can't script, right? Then the final thing I'll say is um, I heard um, – I heard a lot of people talking about how it was a playoff atmosphere. It wasn't. What it was was whenever they showed David Wright or anything to do with David Wright, the crowd went into a frenzy, and then when they didn't, the crowd was you know sitting on their hands. So it wasn't the high buzz of postseason baseball. It was sort of like a roller coaster geared around the star of the night. So, no, it wasn't a playoff atmosphere. It wasn't a postseason atmosphere. But nonetheless, it was a great atmosphere. It was a fun night, and um, – they did it right. Sam, you know, I always like to sprinkle in a little bit, a little bit more as we go around. David Wright night. But I also want you to touch upon what the hell was up with the fans with Jose, Jose, Jose during Dave Wright night. That, and, I, you know, I thought his daughter throwing out the first pitch, I thought that was nice. Uh, I thought it was special for him personally. So your impressions of Sam David Wright? Well, I was, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go as I had wanted to uh, because I had to earn. And it's like, the, it's one of it's one of the few times that I've put on the baseball game while driving Lyft. Uh, and I figured, you know, it being the region, I was in North Jersey, uh, it probably wasn't going to be that big of a deal to the passengers to not hear uh, my Pandora shuffle. Um, I, I, so the majority of the time I was listening to it, but then I was able to take a break for his last at bat, uh, as well as the send off. And I mean, you guys said, yeah, you know, it was scripted, nothing necessarily organic, like a home run happened, but, and you could hear it in Gary Cohen's voice. There probably wasn't a dry eye in the house. And, and, and it was, it was one of those moments that Gary, who, came back, obviously holding back tears, um, let the moment breathe like, like, like Vin would, if you will. Uh, and I, 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 you know, it was just one of those things where it, it's remarkable that you, it's really millions of people all at once. Cause it's not just the, the, the 43,000 there plus my, myself, there were probably millions of people crying bittersweet tears. And and I think I felt that, and though it was more sweet than bitter, I still was like part of the crying was, you know, I I got to see this guy, and I'm not going to see him anymore, and that's too bad. But I'm really happy that that I I got to the point where I wasn't hating on David Wright anymore, like I used to, at at some point. That I by now I've appreciated what and who I saw and that I was watching baseball history and Mets history when it comes to David Wright. Um, one of the things that really uh, stuck with me was that, for one, I heard that his first at-bat was a pop-up on the first base side or something like that. So it was weirdly, it was a weird bookend uh, with him popping up to first base. But if you look at David's face, I mean, the first baseman kind of like had to make a stretch for it and – I want to say that like he could have dropped it, but I think David had this smile on his on his face, like 
You had to catch that? You couldn't give me one more twist? <laughs> Uh, and so that that is that's one of the things I noticed about it. Um, I I also thought it was it was surreal uh, that everybody like almost everybody was still there in the 13th. And then and and uh, you guys can speak to it since you guys are actually at the ballpark. But because he was speaking after the game, everybody was waiting to hear from David. And so they, a lot of people got to see this walk off. So I mean, if you guys, uh, whoever Mike you want to throw it to first, I'm kind of curious as to. Uh, what that feeling was like. Because normally on a Saturday night, especially if you brought your kids, everybody is leaving by like the 10th or 11th. So uh, what was that like for you guys? John, tell us. And also tell us about the Mets fans booing the first baseman and your impressions of the Jose chant. Am I making too much of that? No, I I uh, I felt a little you know queasy about that too because this was David's night and I know David wanted Jose to be a part of it and I you know I totally res- total respect for that, uh, but I uh, but yeah this was David's night it should have been David's night alone uh, I, I I've been uneasy with the Jose Jose chant since uh, he came back after the domestic violence thing but that's a whole other conversation uh, I. In terms of the fans staying, I think everybody wanted to stay. But after each inning, I think you saw more and more people kind of giving up because I thought it thinned out a lot. I know my section had a lot of the the cheerleaders, the junior high school cheerleaders that had performed before the game, and that and our whole whole section was pretty much gone by the by the seventh inning. So, and I think everybody wanted to you know hang hang as long as they could because they knew Wright was speaking after the game, but by the time I, the thirteenth came, it looked more like a normal Saturday night crowd that had thinned out a lot, but you know listen, they tried, and the people that were left uh were were rewarded for it. I certainly wouldn't say it was a full house uh but I will say this when they started booing Peter O'Brien. That poor kid, uh, his next at bat, I had no idea what was going on. I'm like, why are we booing? I really thought like they showed Chipper Jones on the screen or something, giving his, uh, you know, congratulations or whatnot. I really had no idea, and somebody had to tell me they're booing the first baseman because he didn't drop the pop-up. And and Sam, I think, hit on it, too, is that he may have had to make this last-second stretch for it. I think if we had gotten under it and caught it normally, maybe – people wouldn't have put it together, but everybody was booing because he didn't drop it, which I, I honestly, I thought it was kind of silly to be, to be honest with you. I thought it's like, all right, look, we can't keep, we can't boo these, this guy like he's Armando Benitez. And that's what it sounded like. And I, I thought we kind of looked silly. Rich, you were there as well. I was watching it. Armando home. deserves every boo ever. <laughs> I, was, I was watching it home. Uh, you know what? He, I, I get the impression that he kind of made an effort not to catch that ball. Uh, I I do feel the Marlins kind of grooved David Wright a pitch, and he just missed it. But you were there. Your impressions about what Sam said, what say you? Well, you know, a true confession time. I left in the ninth. I was home by the 12th, and I watched the 12th and 13th at home. Um, And I'll I'll tell you why, because, I thought we you know I was with a group of people. We talked about it. We said, "Look, I'm recording the game at home. We're going to have his speech in perpetuity." We saw him play. We saw him get. You know, we gave him his ovation. We basically have the whole thing recorded. You know, on our phones. It's getting to be a little ridiculous now. So, so we. I actually watched the, the, the you know the walk off. I saw him do his speech on TV. And about the O'Brien thing, 
uh, you know, okay, it's funny to boo the guy. He has to catch the ball. I mean, come on. You know, anybody right. who thinks he should have let it drop, are you kidding me? You know, you, you can't. <laughs> my daughter's looking at me because she, she's mad at the guy for, for catching the ball. But you cannot make a mockery of a major league game. You, you could groove a pitch. Nobody knows you did that. You can go ahead and groove a pitch and, you know, let him take his hack. That's fine because that's subtle. It's covert. Um, but on the other hand, if you if you just drop a pop up, you're making a mockery of it, and you can't do that. They gave him a chance, and he, he didn't capitalize. So be it. Who cares? If he got in a base hit, who cares? I mean, we we were there. We saw what we had to see, and uh, and that that's my take on it. Uh, good, good, and a good one. Uh, as you said, Rich, this was the 57th season of Mets baseball. Let's just throw out a couple of numbers out there. And as we know, with numbers, you can torture them as much as you want and get them to say anything. That being said, they finished the season with a 77 and 85 record. But disappointing, 37 and 44 at home, 40 and 41 on the road. Uh, here's where the numbers go awry. In the first half, they were 39 and 55. In the second half, they were 38 and 30. Uh, I will throw out this stat just for the sake of it. Uh, they were 16 and 26 in one-run games. There's a stat I will be willing to take into next season. Uh, that being said, John, your impressions of the Mets season, the Mets record, and the Mets finish for that matter. Because, you know, a strong season or a strong uh, end of season or strong finish, that's what I was struggling to say. Thank you. Uh, does not yeah. append it make. So, John, take it away. Well, I, I, I've i always been the person to say, don't pay attention to September baseball. It means nothing. Uh, and, you know, strong finishes don't really matter. I think this strong finish matters a little bit. I And I think because, you know, they, they didn't play a lot of teams that were that had everything locked up. They still played a lot of teams that were fighting for something. And uh, and I think with the makeup of the team changing from from July into August, with some of the veterans leaving, uh, and and with some of the improvements that guys like Rosario and Conforto made for different reasons, uh, yeah. And, and of course with with uh, the play of Jeff McNeil, I do think that this is something you can build upon for next year. But here's the trick: you got to actually build upon it. You can't just say, oh, well, they went 30 and 21 to end the season. Hey, let's, let's roll, roll again with the same group of players, and that means we'll be even better next year. Well, no, because the rest of the division is going to improve, and the Mets should improve. They've got, they have two big factions of their game that need major improvements, and that's offense and that's the bullpen. And those are the two things I think when you watch the playoffs this year – those are the two things that I think will decide a lot of ball playoff games, the, the line, lineups and bullpens. And that's what I think the Mets need to improve on in both aspects. It's nice to finish strong. It's nice that Conforto seems back on track. It's nice that Rosario has been hitting in the 280s for a good portion of the, uh, of the last couple of months. McNeil is great. I think McNeil should be the starting second baseman at least to start next year. But you got to build upon that, and there's ways to do that, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But there's there's definitely ways to do that, but they've got to do it. Sam, I'll, I'll throw this, I'll sprinkle this one on on you, Sam. 
against the Braves, the Cubs, and the Rockies, the Mets were combined 8-25. and 25. You can point to that if you want to and just figure I'd throw it out there. But as John alluded to, in July they were 12-12, and 12, and in August they were 15-15. and 15. We know how September wound up. But uh, what say you about a 77-85 and 85 season? It's weird because it doesn't feel like it, it has felt at the end of some of those 77-85 seasons. Um, you know, it's just like, it's it's li- literally, they, their their residency is between 83 and 88 wins right now. Um, so I, I think that, I think we fooled ourselves into thinking this team was going to contend uh, because of a few things. Um, one, Sandy kind of uh, made some small but, but, relatively worthy moves that were, or we thought they were kind of worthy, especially because there hadn't been much done the whole off season. All of a sudden he, he signed some players, um, even though, you know, there was the, we, we, we framed them as good moves, even though in reality, it was just another one of those, you know, the, not the, not the greatest, but not the worst kind of, kind of moves. Um, and and I think we also fooled ourselves because we thought Mickey Calloway was just going to segue right in, coming from a winning Indians team. Um, and so we fooled ourselves into thinking this was just another one of these one of these years, uh, as part of this whole 2015-2016 era with, of Sandy Alderson. Um, but but in reality. Uh, you know, it was the 11-1 start that fooled us. It, it, was, it was Mickey Calloway and whatnot. But in reality, this is a very transitional year, uh, and and I think I think that that that, that the fact that both our, us as fans as well as the organization didn't pick up on it that led to what ended up happening, which was extremely lackadaisical uh, play by by uh, June. Um, a manager who didn't yet know exactly what he was doing in the NL, um, and Sandy Alderson, uh, kind of, you know, sickness aside, I think the league caught up to Sandy. And we've talked about it on the podcast before that we saw a different type of play with the same personnel with with the second half of the season. And it's why it's a 38-30 and 30 record in the second half of the season. Now, you point, you point to – you know, in 25, they obviously need to improve against those types of teams. But July, June overall, uh, you know, like five and 20, you mark, you make up those eight games. You know, like like somewhere in that that five and 20, you make up those you make up those games, and it's just not even it's not even close to as 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 bad of a feeling. Um, but I think that I think that with uh, I think by the end of the season with the play that we saw from the personnel currently here uh, and the fact that they were tightening up some of the reasons why they were losing, i.e., like you said, John, the offense and the bullpen, they tightened those up even though the bullpen still has some major issues. But um, I think it's those things that lead us to have that same kind of good feeling like we had at the end of 2014. And maybe even more so because it's um, you have Jacob Degrom, you have Syndergaard, you have you you're starting to have 
the the uh, the generate the 2015 generation who were all basically in their first or second years at the time now settling in as as people who are getting used to winning or or at least knowing what it's like to be a winning ball player even if the team is not winning around you. Syndergaard cleaned up his act at the end. That was a big that was a big deal. And again, forget about garbage time. This guy challenged himself verbally out loud to all the fans and he had maybe one bad start since he made that challenge. And so that's something to to get behind. Um Matt's is something to get behind. Somebody brought up his the same surgery. This was this was his first season uh back from the same surgery that DeGrom had. Now obviously we shouldn't expect Steven Matz to all of a sudden turn a one sixty nine ERA next year. Uh but and especially that last start I, I think there's a lot to build on with with um, with Stephen Matz. Not only the way he pitched, but the fact that he stayed a lot healthier. He obviously couldn't he couldn't uh, uh, avoid the injury bug completely, but he wasn't nearly out as long, and he actually got some starts under his belt and looked great and looked really great at the end there. I mean, that last start was real sharp on on uh, Stephen Matz's part. So those are those are some of my thoughts uh, regarding the seventy-seven eighty-five record. It is it's it's still too mediocre, and they need to stop. Like you know, so like just it, it's 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 I'll I'll equate it to the Jets, in as much that the Jets are never bad enough to have the first pick, but never good enough to make the playoffs. The Mets don't want to fall into that pattern, which they have been, but. I, I, I even like I even like some of the way Jeff Wilpons frames things. I mean, like, what, what what's going on with us? What's going on with me? I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, uh, you heard all the records. I'll finish I, I'll finish these out. May they were ten and eighteen. June they were five and twenty one. Now we know Mickey Callaway lost the meat of his lineup. He lost his number three, four, and five hitter. Uh, let me throw this at you before we get your impressions of the 77 and 85 record. From July or through July, July through September, excuse me, the Mets were 45 and 37 without Uenis Cespedes. For those three months, they went 45 and 37 without Uenis Cespedes. Now, they finished. Eight games below 500, 77 and 85. Take it away, Rich. So, you know, Mike, you kind of teed me up beautifully because that's exactly what I think. When we did our preseason podcast, I remember saying that I thought the Mets would be 70, I'm sorry, 84 and 78, right? Good and over 500, but missed the playoffs. Okay. 84 wins. They did most of they they played most of the season without Cespedes. I'm looking here at Cespedes in a good year. His his WAR is around six. So if you add all that up and you say okay, they had 77 wins without Cespedes. You add six wins if you had a healthy Cespedes. Now you're at 83. So my point isn't that gee I nailed it on the head. You know but that's not why I'm doing that math. What I'm saying here is it's very apparent the impact Yoenis Cespedes has on this team. And now I know you just quoted some numbers that they were that they were over 500 without him. However, when you think about what they could have been with him, if you add in those six wins or something close to that, what this is telling you is that 
this team is heavily dependent on that one guy, and when they finally found a way to compete without him, it took a while, but they had to get into um, you know, diversifying the offense. It took a while to settle into that. They were able to make up some of that ground. So, so those are my thoughts on 77 and 85 is that although they, they found a way to win without him, imagine what they would have been with him. If you add those wins back in, now you're a borderline playoff team. You're, you're getting close. So my additional thought is if you don't have Cespedes next year, you have to find a way to replace those six wins somewhere else. And then the statistics you quoted, and, and, and they talked about th- that the bullpen ERA is the highest in the history of the franchise. You give this team a quality closer and a good bullpen around that closer, you either get Cespedes back or find something similar, you're in the playoffs. I'm sorry. You know, I don't want to sound like a shill. It's not what I'm trying to do. But you are in the playoffs if you address that bullpen and get your guy back or somebody who can give you those six wins because having the bullpen fixed, that's probably going to be ten wins right there. Now you're looking at, what, 16 more wins? You're there, man. I mean, I don't think this team is that far off. I really don't. Um, I think that's the path to success for them. Address the bullpen. Find a way to replace those six wins from Cespedes, either from himself or someone else, or another right-handed bat. I think you're there. And, Rich, if I can jump in, I also had 84 wins, too, so that's really spooky. Uh, But uh, you're absolutely right in everything that you said. Cespedes back and fix the bullpen, and maybe maybe even one more bat after that. You guys have the same plan and you have the same prediction. It's amazing. <laughs> John, before we let you go, we got one more matter of concern here. Uh, Jacob DeGrom, what a, what a fantastic season. Uh, Cy Young, your closing arguments, please. Jake for Cy Young. Well, Jake... I think when you look at the context of a season, you know, I've always wanted to pump the brakes as the season wore on about DeGrom being the Cy Young because you never know how voters are going to react. I I had always said if Scherzer stayed within a half a run of DeGrom and stayed in a pennant race, that Scherzer would get some votes. And and he might have gotten enough votes to, uh, to overtake DeGrom, even though I think DeGrom has always deserved it. But Scherzer couldn't – he had the 300 strikeouts, but he couldn't even click off those seemingly easy check marks of staying within within DeGrom's range, and a lot of that is DeGrom just being so good, and also the Nationals staying in a pennant race. He couldn't even do that. So to me – and and also I think Nola getting into the picture picture is going to steal some votes from Scherzer. He's not going to steal any votes from DeGrom. So for me – I don't think the, even the voters in their skewered thinking, even the voters that still think in the primitive times, I don't think they have any excuse to not vote for DeGrom. His season has been not just spectacular, but historic. I mean, you're talking about when you're talking about 1968 Gibson in the same sentence as this season from DeGrom, that's amazing. When you're talking about basically going through an entire season of pitching nothing but quality starts. The, the, uh, the, the first time somebody has pitched three innings or less in, in, uh, since, uh, uh, J, uh, since somebody named King Cole, that's spectacular. And when you're talking in the context of this season, there's really nobody else that, you, that comes close 
in my mind, to DeGrom's season. And I think the context of the season is that when you're, when you're talking about three top candidates for Cy Young, all having to go through the same things, pitch, pitch with urgency while not in a pennant race, who did that the best? It was Jacob DeGrom. You're talking about, what, 209 innings, and I think at least 175 of those innings were pitched with the score tied, one run down, or one run up. That's an amazing number. And, that, and it's so easy for a team out of the pennant race, it would have been so easy to, for DeGrom to take one start off and say, you know what, I didn't have it today, I'm not mentally in it. His competitiveness and his focus through, through this season with his team not scoring at all for him. Well, he's had to go through games where the only run support came off of his bat. It really has been an amazing season. And the context, again, the context of the season, I think, is competitiveness and focus. And DeGrom had it more than the other two. And the other two, listen, Scherzer's a Hall of Famer. Aaron is going to be a great pitcher. But this season, I don't think there's any argument for those guys to win the Stanley Cup. I think, I think the award belongs to DeGrom. And in terms of MVP, I would be thrilled if he got one first-place vote for MVP. I think that would be spectacular, and I think that would be the cherry on top. I don't think he's going to win the MVP. But if he got one first-place vote, I'd be very happy. But Cy Young, that's Jake's. An MVP vote would be stellar. That would be stellar. Uh, I got one more question for you. Uh, and before you answer it, I want you to give us one more plug. Tell us what you're doing and where you're doing it at. And, and here's the sure. question. It's really just for fun, uh, and I'm not giving you much of a choice. If you had to spend money, would you do it? Would you spend it on Manny Machado or a platoon of relievers? Those are your only two choices. Oh, wow. Manny Machado or platoon relievers? A platoon of relief pitchers. Uh, two relief pitchers. A, a platoon, uh, I, as in many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because I have something that's and – and it goes along with my plug because on my, on my blog site, metstradamusblog.com, I am – publishing tomorrow morning is going to be my layout for what exactly I would do this season. I did not include Manny Machado. And I only didn't include Manny Machado because I didn't think it was a realistic ask of this ownership. I, I'm, I'm going to ask them to spend money this offseason. I'm going to ask them to do some things they're not, uh, they're not used to doing, like making creative trades. Uh, so for, for me to ask to expect them to sign Manny Machado on top of that and somehow get rid of Todd Frazier, I think that's a lot to ask them. So now, if the Mets decided to go get Machado and, and trade Todd Frazier, I would help Todd Frazier pack. Absolutely. But for me, I think they, they need – I think they can upgrade in, in another position. I think catcher, they need, a, they need an offensive upgrade on badly. So I th- I, what I would do is spend that money on a catcher, on Yasmani Grandal. I would get a closer – like Kimbrell or Zach Britton, either or, and I'd make a couple of trades to shore up that bullpen, maybe trade some money for money, get, uh, get Mark Melanson here, whose contract matches up very similarly to Jay Bruce, I'm just saying, 
and I'd, I'd bring I'd even bring Addison Reed back because he's got one more year left at eight million, and then I would spend I would also spend on a on a good solid utility guy like Daniel Descalso. Is Descalso replacing the roster spot that belonged to Jose Reyes? I think is going to get you at least a win or two. So yeah, to answer to answer your question, yeah, I think uh, along with the plan that I have in mind, I'd go get. I go get a bullpen. They can't go in the next season with this, with this same bullpen. It's got to be remade from the from the back end all the way to the front. Uh, so, and and I would get a catcher. Those are the two things I would do. And I would have, and I know they're not going to do it. I'd have Peter Peter Alonso start be the opening day first baseman, and I'd let him play the whole season. The upside is so high, and I, I just I think it would be a crime not to tap into that and and try to win this season. I think that the roster too is a little, uh, is disjointed in the way there's way too many first basemen, way too many corner outfielders. I think there's ways to kind of get around that and just make the roster a little, a little more solid, a little more, a little better constructed roster with a new bullpen, I think will do the trick. So to answer, it's a long winded question to your answer, but yes, I would go, I would get a bullpen. Not only would you help Todd Frazier, not only would you help Todd Frazier pack, but you'd provide the Tom's River Little League duffel bag for him as well. (laughs) Yes, if I had, I would get a whole case of them if they would help, yes. (laughs) From your mouth to Joan Payson's ears. Rich, any last words for John? No, you know, John, I agree with your assessment, though. I I think if you have a certain amount of money and if you have enough to sign Manny Machado, I'd rather spend that by diversifying that investment and getting several players and one Manny Machado. Um, And I think the bullpen would be my number one investment. And I also agree with you that catcher would be where I would look second. Um, I think you need an upgrade that position in general, offense and defense, my opinion. Um, yes. I don't want Wilson Ramos. I want no part of Wilson Ramos with his knee surgeries. I like Grandal. Uh, the issue is he's another left-handed bat, and they have a lot of them. So if I could get a um, if I could get a right-handed hitting catcher who could play some defense, now we're talking. You know, re- remake my bullpen. Uh, I'm talking about a quality closer. I don't want to make a closer. I want to buy one and um, remake the bullpen from the inside out, basically, and give me a catcher, preferably a right-handed hitting catcher, and I'll go to war. Okay. Grindal, I think, is a switch hitter, by the way. He might hit much better left-handed than right, I'm not sure, but I'm be- I believe he's a switch hitter. Oh, let me look that up. He might, you might be right, John. On that note, do we bid farewell on behalf of Rich and Sam? John, is it time to get back to real life? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Sadly, it is time to get back to real life. But uh, I would love to come back and uh, thank you for uh, thank you for always reaching out with the invite. And uh, hopefully, I can do this again soon. And it, uh, it'll take much less time for me to return. But I, I really appreciate it. I've, I've enjoyed it with you guys. Invitation is always there. Thank you for your time. We appreciate you appearing on the Messian podcast. Thank you so very very all much. Right. Thanks, thank you all, guys. Catch you next time, man. Gentlemen. Let's uh, let's circle back to Degrom. Let's take it from the top. You know, we'll start with the pitching, the starters, the relievers. We'll take it around the diamond. We'll talk about the outfielders, and ultimately, we got to talk about ownership. We got to talk about Jeff and his closing words. So, Jacob Degrom, let's make our final uh, our final arguments for the Cy Young Award. I, I wrote the other day. I may have gotten the stat wrong. 
my memory may serve me wrong, but in, in at least at least 18 of his 32 starts, he allowed one run or less. In at least 18 of them. I, I, I think I wrote 21, but I look back, I think one of those starts lasted an inning. I think we all remember that game. He was taking out some, you know, some he just didn't feel right, and the Mets took him out, blah, blah, blah. But for at least 18 games, he allowed one run or less. Scherzer allowed one run or less in 12 of his 33 starts, and I say that not being uh, exactly sure if he indeed made that last and final start of the season. Uh, the, the last one I remember was his 10-strikeout performance, and then DeGrom matched it with his final start of the season, uh, likewise striking out 10. So if he made that last start, it still, don't, it still doesn't sway my opinion one way or the other. Uh, but my point is, again, one run or less, at least 18 times. It could be 19. It could be 20. Uh, Sam, take it away. You know, you kind of uh, you, you, you uh, laid it up for me. Because I was going to mention, like, how can somebody who now owns the major league record with something like close to 30 straight starts of three runs or less, and like you said, the majority of those starts are 29. one less. So how did that person not win the Cy Young Award? Which is why it's like you, you hear some people be like, yeah, you gotta, it's got to be the wins, it's got to be the wins. Look at all the numbers. Look at all the numbers. Another thing. Let's go to Max Scherzer. And, and again, I'm going to get most stats wrong right now. But, you know, what? when does somebody who gives up 23 home runs a year win the Cy Young Award? You say, you guys tell me that. All right? I don't know about Aaron Nola. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about Aaron Nola um, to really talk shit about him, really. Like, I can talk shit about Max Scherzer right now. Because... I've always, I've just, for a long time, I thought this guy is overrated. And it's probably mainly to do with that home run ball. Jacob gave up 10 home runs. And even the fact that, like, he got into double digits surprises me. I don't know how many Aaron Nola gave up. But the thing that's always been glaring about Max Scherzer was that he's home run prone, no matter how small that ERA is. However small that ERA is, the majority of the runs are coming from the home runs. 23 home runs versus 10. How are you, as an organization on Twitter, arguing with me about this, Washington Nationals, at at Washington Nationals? <laughs> I'll confirm that stat for you. DeGrom led the National League with a 0.9 home runs per nine innings pitched ratio. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's just like the more you dissect Jacob's numbers, the more you 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 start to wonder whether it was even a better season than Dwight Gooden. Now, I wasn't there for that, so I think it's kind of uh I can't even throw that out there as as you know, from from my own like personal perspective. Um but you you do have to wonder uh especially considering everything going against him. Whereas Dwight was in the middle of a pennant race that whole year, everything going against Jacob DeGrom, you know, we're going to start having these arguments as to the best pitching seasons in the history of this franchise. And and Jacob DeGrom is going to be in the top one, two, or three. 
Uh, I'm trying to recall the exact numbers, but I can't. Rich, uh, slash. Scherzer had DeGrom beat in batting average against, but DeGrom had Scherzer beat in on base percentage, slugging, and OPS. DeGrom also had a better fifth and an ERA plus, and we know he led the majors in regular ERA. Uh, Scherzer got him on strikeouts. He had him on strikeouts to walks ratio and, and, and things like that. But to me, I think that slash really sticks out. DeGrom definitely got him beat there, along with some other stats. So, you know, your impressions of the season, and again, just to clarify, that record uh, is, a, is a major league record, 29 games set in 1910 by King Cole of the Chicago Cubs. 29 games, and it also matches the record set over two seasons by uh, Arietta when he was with the Cubs, but he did it over two seasons. So we're talking a major league record here. Rich, take it away. Well, you know, you, you could play the tit-for-tat stat game with um, with DeGrom and, and Scherzer like the at Nationals like to do. And, you know, as unscientifically speaking, if you play the individual stat game, they they maybe come out to a draw, you know, because Scherzer has them in strikeout. Scherzer has them in strikeouts per nine innings. Scherzer has them in strikeout to walk. DeGrom, uh, I believe they're very close in whip. I'd call that a, that a, a dead heat. DeGrom has him in, you know, in various other statistics. But, but, when you, but when you stop and look at it, right, I go back to what Mickey Calloway said a couple of months ago. The job of a pitcher is to prevent runs. That is the job. It doesn't matter if you prevent runs by striking people out. doesn't matter. Bottom line is it does not matter. You are paid to prevent runs in any way you have to. Jacob deGrom prevents runs better than does Max Scherzer. It's that simple. A 1.7 ERA, I believe Scherzer ended with like a 265, 26-ish. DeGrom has basically done a little less than a run better. That, that's a lot than, than Scherzer. He's prevented runs at a pace of almost a full run per nine innings better than Scherzer, period, full stop. If you want to go a little bit farther and look at it slightly differently, I then bring in the 29 consecutive quality starts. 29 times in a row, this guy, Jacob deGrom, went out there and he was able to prevent more than three runs scoring in a start. It, to me, th- those, that's what matters. Again, it doesn't matter if you, get, if you prevent runs by, ground, you know, by throwing a lot of ground balls, as they say, striking people out. Those are window dressing statistics. The job of a pitcher is to prevent runs. The fact of the matter is Jacob deGrom prevented runs with a much greater efficiency than did Max Scherzer. Hence, he wins the Cy Young, and as far as I'm concerned, period, full stop. Well said, son. Well said. Uh, Let's stay on the pitching. I'll just throw this out there. You can feature any pitcher you'd like. Uh, This season, finally, I think, we had four starters. We know who they are. They all had 25-plus starts, and they all maintained an ERA below four. 
I'm just particularly pleased that Noah Syndergaard finished, and I say finished, with a 3.03 ERA. Uh, I know people are trying to water down this statistic and hype that statistic, but ERA still means something to me. Uh, So take it away, Sam, anybody, anywhere you want to go with starting pitchers. I think that the uh, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, you said it. You know, we finally got some uh, a, a rotation together, and guess who wasn't a part of it? Name's Matt Harvey, and I don't know why, why it 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 popped in my head, Matt Harvey, when you were talking about this. But I think why it popped into my head was because he has been so like he was such a part of the conversation on a daily basis for so long. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't. And we haven't even, like, I can't even remember the last time we talked about Matt Harvey. But the absence of that, of him is glaring. And con- considering, you know, you got, uh, like you said, you know, uh, uh, four starter, starters who made 25, uh, more than 25 starts. For the last few years, we've been... They, We've been hoping that Matt Harvey would get his shit together in the middle of that rotation. And so while 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 you while you were hoping for another quality start, Jacob DeGrom kept giving quality starts, you'd get to Matt Harvey and by the fifth inning he would have given up five or six runs. I think that's the biggest glare like when when we were talking about it, you know, who are we not mentioning anymore because he's not on the team but he's also a non factor outside of, of the team, and that's Matt Harvey. So that that's just that's where the conversation went for me. So go ahead, Mike. Rich, take it away, sir. Well, you know, isn't it interesting? You're talking about pitchers ERA, but, but David Wright, I'm sure you guys caught this on David Wright night, um, said he was really happy that, that Stephen Matz was able to go up there and throw zeros, so he was able to get his ERA below four. So here's David Wright on his night acknowledging that he's happy that Stephen Matz's ERA will come in less than four. How great is that? But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the pitchers. You know, it, again, it's the biggest reason to be optimistic going into 2019. The Mets have not one, not two, not three, but four pitchers who do a good job, as I said earlier, at preventing runs. You know, Mike, when you and I were kids, a good ERA was, you know, what, 2-5? Well, times have changed. Now below four is a good ERA. And the Mets have four guys who do that. And when those guys go, you have a chance to win every game. And um, so I'm very happy that these guys show durability, as as you alluded to earlier. They they, they show durability by making their 25 starts. you know, it, it's – and even Jason Vargas, you know, I, I know people shudder when you say that, but he – coming down the stretch, he pitched well. And if – so I believe his ERA coming down the stretch was around 3-3, three, three, something like that. So l- let's just say that his ERA is closer to 4. If we can get him, your, your number five starter, you're, you're the weakest of the bunch with a 4 ERA and the rest below that, you give yourself you give yourself a chance to win every night, and um, and what you're pointing to, Mike, the starting pitchers, their durability, their ERAs. Yes, if we have any reason for optimism, and I do believe we do, um, that's where the optimism comes from. That is exactly where it comes from. 
Gentlemen, give me a drum roll, please, because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, on the line, Mr. Gary Mack, am I correct? Yes, you're correct. Hi, guys. Gary How you Mack. doing? <laughs> What's up, my friend? Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Gary McDonald, without further ado, I'll let you take it away. Give us your shameless plugs. What are you doing? And what are you doing on a golf podcast, for Pete's sake? Anyway, <laughs> tell us what you're doing, where you do it, how you do it, please. Well, when I started podcasting, I actually started with a golf podcast. And I did it for uh, uh, 245 episodes. And then uh, I started uh, doing some uh, other podcasts. I did Mets Musings, of course, which I continue to do. And uh, and and some other ones, and then just it was just too much, and uh, I stopped four years ago, and now I I just recently retired. I got the golf bug again, and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to bring back the old Talking Golf with Gary podcast, and uh, so this is my, I guess my second episode. I'm calling it episode 247. Just continuing the count from where I uh, stopped and uh, I, I've had a good time so far doing it. Not many listeners, but a good time doing it, <laughs> but I still do Mets music and, and uh, starting to feel some withdrawal from the end of the season. Here, here. Uh, we left off or we were in the midst of speaking about starting pitching uh, our previous guest, whom you are familiar with, John Coppinger of Mr. Damas, uh, he gave us his uh, closing argument for Jacob DeGrom's bid for Cy Young. I threw out there that we had four starting pitchers, all of which had 25-plus start this, seasons, uh, this season with an ERA under four, which I found very promising. So your impressions of the starting rotation, anybody who you want to throw out there, Jacob DeGrom, etc. And, uh, you know, you can cycle back to the Mets' 77-85 and 85 record for the season that was. Gary, take it away, please. Well, uh, you know, talking about DCS pitching staff, I think it was amazing to watch the uh, evolution, if you will, of uh, uh, Zach Wheeler, who something clicked in his head, and he learned how to pitch all of a sudden, and really was amazing. He went from a, a really a four-inning, five-inning guy to a seven-eighth-inning pitcher. So um, that was an amazing thing. Uh, it was pretty cool to see Steven Matz at least have show signs that he's ready to put it together. Something clicked in his head as well. And, and maybe sometimes it's maturity. Sometimes it's just uh, hearing something from a different voice. And uh, but for the most part, Matt, you know, he struggled. He had some bad games, but he also had some really good games. And he was injury free, and that was the key thing with him. Syndergaard, uh, of course, still wants to throw at 105. He's got to get over that and learn. Uh, look at the game he pitched the other day, and he, he cut back a little bit on his speed because the Grom every every outing practically. I, you know, I can't remember. I think he had one or two bad starts the whole year. Um, he was just amazing. So it, 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 I, I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about um, 
the whole season and if I had to grade it. And I, I think my grade is getting more optimistic. I, I think uh, even Callaway, I think he did a better job the second half of the year. And, you know, I may be in agreement a little bit with, with uh, Jeff Wilpon. I hate to say that. With the whole Sandy Alderson thing, but Mickey Calloway seemed to manage better once Sandy Alderson was gone. And it almost makes you think, was Sandy telling him what to do? You know, Sandy Alderson was the guy with the home runs and everything. And when as soon as he was gone, Calloway started bunting and they started hitting, hitting and running and, and uh, of course, it helped that Jeff McNeil came up and they put him in a spot in the lineup, and he hit right off the bat, uh, no pun intended. Uh, but uh, I, I was thinking I just got uh, very optimistic about next year, and I still think, you know, um, that they need uh, some help. I But I don't know if it's as bad as... They definitely need a bullpen. They need some sort of closer. They need a lefty reliever that can actually get lefties out. Um, and uh, but I like the the idea that a lot of these guys they brought up and they played them, and they threw them into the fire. And and you'll see who comes out the other end. I like that idea, especially in a losing season. How many times have we cried for that? You know, um, let's see the young guys. Let's see the young guys. Let's see what they can do. I know they're out of the race, but these guys are fighting for a job. So being in the race or out of the race, they want to win just as badly because they want to impress everybody. So I I, I like that because you can't buy experience. You can see what a guy did. uh, You can see by his statistics, but you can't buy experience. And I think it it worked before when they brought up the young pitching staff, when Syndergaard came up, when DeGrom came up. Um, and, uh, and I hope it works again with some of the bullpen guys, you know, I felt bad for Seawall. He had such a, uh, a great year last year, a good year last year. And this year he struggled so mightily, but, um, we'll see maybe next year. Uh, but it's just, I, I just got it more. I know I'm off the topic now, but I just have a more optimistic feel about this all. So before, before uh, Mike, you start up anything, um, since I really hardly was able to watch on a daily basis, um, and I'll start with you, Mike, and you, can, you could uh, uh, mediate from there. Um, Corey Oswald, uh, what, what do we think of him? It seemed like he, he uh, you know, he wasn't the greatest, but he could be a serviceable fifth start. Uh, he could be, but I'll defer to Rich. Well, um, I'm not sure that I, I see him in that capacity. I mean, Oswald is a guy who, sure, I mean, in an emergency, if you have to throw him out there, I suppose you can. Um, he did finish the season with a 5.77 ERA. He had one or two starts where he looked decent. But you know, in him, you have a young guy who is reliant on deception, you know, the, the art of the craft. You know, he's throwing around 90, 91. He's trying to move the ball around. It's kind of like a younger Bartolo. You know what I mean? Take, put a little on, take a little bit off, try to hit the spots. Um, the only difference is, you know, he doesn't really have the p- pitching chops like a Bartolo. Um, so, 
is Oswald okay depth to have in AAA and you get a, a freak injury and you have to get him here from Syracuse and you know next year? Sure. But I think um, given the choice between Vargas or, or Oswald, I, I'll take Vargas seven times a week. Um, you know, veteran guy, knows what he's doing. And when he you know, got regular work, he seemed to settle into to doing something decent. So a uh, long way of saying Oswald, organizational depth maybe, Fifth starter, not in my mind, emergency only. Uh, I was about to agree with you. Jason Vargas pretty much determines that. Uh, Gary, any any uh, insight into Corey Oswald's future with the Mets? <laughs> Gary? Did you uh, lose yeah. Gary? Oh, no, I'm um, – like Rich said, he uh, – oh, he was serviceable. Um, I thought he did a good job. I, I don't know whether he's going to stick. He may have to develop another pitch. I, I don't know. It, it, it's just, uh, you know, sometimes you need a pitcher like that. But like you said, they got Vargas for that. And, and Vargas did pitch well once he was healthy. Um, health seems to be the big thing, you know. I mean, look uh, look at Bruce. Bruce came back. And Bruce shouldn't have played this season. He, started the season when he did. Neither should have Conforto. Neither should have Cespedes. The whole outfield shouldn't have started the season because they were hurt. And maybe if they had come back healthy, look at the year Conforto had. I mean, you know, the batting average wasn't there, but the home runs and the RBIs were a big improvement over last year. So, um, and he showed you what he could do. Um. Yeah, getting uh, Oswald. Yeah, he's he's a good insurance policy. I don't know if he's ready, or if he'll ever be. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Logan Verrett in a way, maybe a tad better, but a little now. Logan uh, Verrett of the Eric Camp. <laughs> let's stay with Conforto. Let's stay in the outfield. Conforto. He did not have a spring training, but uh, your report card, Rich. On Conforto? Yep. Um, I think you see why this kid is something special. Uh, you know, um, I'm going to put him in the same bucket as I did with Vargas earlier. Not, not, not in terms of, not literally. But, I mean, in terms of guys who, when they got regular work, it really mattered. You know, look, look at Conforto. He really struggled. He had to go through his, you know, quote-unquote spring training in major league games he had to settle back in after what was major surgery. And look at the guy. I mean, the guy is um, – the guy got the job done the entire second half. You know, it wasn't some fluke thing. Um, he was – he really got he, – he seemed to settle in. His power came back. You look at his numbers, right? So I'll, I'll just read a few off. 28 home runs. 82 RBIs. The average is a little bit low, lower than you'd like at 243. But at the same time, you know, again, he's coming off a very low base with that average. He really had an excellent second half. So if you give me about 20 more points on average, get him to about 265, maybe those 28 home runs become 35 in a fully healthy season. Those 82 RBIs become 100. 35, 100, 265, yeah, I'll take that any day of the week. And also I'll add, Conforto is a damn good outfielder. You know, he's not the he's not a Juan Lagaris, but he doesn't have to be. Uh 
He makes every play. Um, he plays both corner positions. He can play center in a pinch. Uh, he plays both corner positions very well. He doesn't have the best throwing arm in the National League, but he has a damn accurate one. He doesn't do anything stupid on the base paths. He runs the bases well. Um, you know, he's not going to steal you 25 bases, but he's certainly not going to embarrass you on the base paths. So I, I think the guy, um, all things considered, had a very good year. I'll give his year a B plus. And um, with saying that with regular work, and if it were a full year's if it were a full year's body of work, and he had been out there regularly and hadn't had a spring training, I'm sure it would have been an A. Sam, uh, we want your report card on Michael Conforto, but expand the conversation uh, with regards to the outfield. Bring Brandon Nimmo into this conversation. Leave Jay Bruce at first base for now, because we need to make room for Juan Lagares and Austin Jackson. Uh, bye bye, or not so fast. No, I think I think Austin Jackson kind of lost some of his good stock from the beginning. I mean, when you, uh, you know, started like at three thirty for the majority of the time or whatever it was, and now it's like two forty five. Um, you know, I it, the basically you know you're a pumpkin um, by that by, at that point. And uh, the thing about Nimmo was, I'm kind of curious as to where he was going before that wrist injury. Um, and luckily, he, he started performing better. He obviously was, I think, healthier again by the end of the year. Um, but I do wonder, since those RBIs were so low, mind you, it's not really his game, um, but he got like 17, 18 home runs or something like that. I mean, the power was there. Um, so I, I thought that uh, both his average and his RBI total suffered from the wrist injury when he got hit. Uh, Michael Conforto, I was so impressed by the home run and RBI totals because it's all of a sudden it's like, you know, you're watching him have one of the most miserable seasons that you could expect your young uh, up-and-coming uh, outfielder to have. Um, and then you remind yourself they didn't have a spring training. And then you remember that he was basically hovering around like 202 and 210 for a while. And like Rich said, that, that there, was a, there was a very uh, bottom base for that with where his batting average was at the beginning of the year. 243 got up there considerably. Um, and we forgot about the shoulder injury, and he made it through the whole season healthy. That's a big deal, too. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Austin Jackson, I probably don't sign, re-sign him. I know we're looking for, for outfield depth without Cespedes, but uh, like you guys said, you got to get something equivalent, and you're not going to get that one way or the other, even if Austin Jackson is is performing well. You're not going to get that with him. Michael Conforto, uh, I, you know, I, you, you just want to see what he can do having a normal together year. And then Nimmo, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled to see where he can go from here with all that enthusiasm and that base, the, the, the sharp baseball senses he has. That's the thing that I really appreciate about what's going on with that outfield is that both Conforto and Nimmo have an excellent baseball sense overall. They know how to get the barrel to the bat, which is such a cliche to say, but, like, people don't know how to do that. <laughs> people don't know how to hit. Jeff McNeil, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, they know how to get the barrel to the ball. And that's a big, big deal in this day and age. And especially, 
like you said, like all of a sudden, I, I, I believe it was Gary, like all of a sudden, uh, you know, Mickey Calloway's bunting, he's hitting and run when Sandy left. And yeah, I guess you do have to wonder what kind of influence Sandy Alderson had on, on the way the entire uh, organization operated. Would, would Terry Collins have been, you know, uh, would he have been in the jackpot with those uh, hit and runs or something like that? Anyway, I, I think that, that um, uh, going to the outfield, I think their talent, Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto, play well with what we now assume is the new type of game the Mets are playing, which is contact-oriented, moves the runners closer to home plate, which I, I get the on-base percentage and the home run. It's, it's, it's maximizing as much as possible, you know, maximizing as many runs in as little time as possible. But, you know, the bottom line is to any way possible, get that runner closer to home plate. And, yeah, I'm excited to see the way all of these different elements can mix together with station kind of play that we saw out of Sandy Alderson. I wish, I wish we could have utilized Cespedes' arm out in the right field. You know, I wish. Anyway, uh, I'm going to transition to second base. I think this is an interesting topic here. And, Gary, I'm going to start with you, but not before I throw out a whole slew of names out here and the failure <laughs> that's been second base. <laughs> I mean, the obvious question is, has Jeff McNeil earned the job yet? Uh, but right now, uh, we have Luis Santana in the low-level minors. We have Andrew Jimenez, or Jimenez, and Ronnie, uh, uh, Mauricio, but they're shortstops. There's Luis Guillorme, and, and there's draft bus Gavin Ciccini. Now you go back into a list of, of past losers like Reese Havens, L.J. Mazzilli, Jordani Val, uh, Valdespin, Dilson Herrera, etc. Does second base warrant a trade or some kind of free agent transaction? Or circling back to my original question, is Jeff McNeil winning the job? Has he won it already? Or is that to be determined in spring training? I, I think he won the job. I think you give him the job. He he fit right in, and uh, you know he did this all year uh, as far as hitting and everything. And, and Sam said he's got an idea. He knows what to do with the plate. And a lot of times, you know, I think of the two biggest. Well, I don't know if you want to call him a star, but uh, think of the two somewhat successes that we've seen in the last five years on this team from their minors, and that's been DeGrom, who was not a highly touted prospect, not to the extent of a Harvey or, or a Syndergaard, and, uh, and now this year really, you know, we're not, not counting Conforto, uh, but uh, McNeil and has proven himself, uh, or it was nice to see what he did, to, or one year he's got to prove himself next year as well, but uh, it, it seems that sometimes the highly touted guys don't always come pan out. And the guys that aren't mentioned, the gritty guys, he's got a lot of Wally Backman in him. He, he's got that grittiness, that uh, dive, get dirty feeling, uh, uh, make contact, do anything to get on base. And, and I like that. I like that in the team. And I think you saw the team change when when he got in the lineup uh Conforto started to hit and go to different fields um 
I, I don't know if you guys spoke about Dominic Smith at all. We where you're going to put him first base or whatever, but he even played better uh, this last part of the season when he came up compared to last year and spring training. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like McNeil. I think McNeil deserves to get the job, uh, or let's say it's his to lose, but I don't think that um, there's any other contenders right now other than Guillaume, perhaps, but he wasn't that impressive with the bat, and he's never really hit terrifically in his minor league career. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I think it's McNeil's job right now. And, and I think there are other holes to fill that, that you can by trades or free agents that are more important right now in second base. He made all the plays. Um, they were saying on the game just the other day about how, how much he's improved around second base with the turns on the double play and everything. So, uh, he's, can, I, he's, can, I just throw, can I just throw that out there about just the play he made behind DeGrom in the eighth inning on Wednesday? Oh terrific. Yeah. Yeah, terrific. Uh, and, and I just, that's what you see. I mean, he's got a dirty uniform, and I like a guy with a dirty uniform at the end of the game. Um, and, and I think he, he deserves a shot. So we've been speaking about Ahmed Rosario for a couple of podcasts now. Are we happy, Sam, up the middle with McNeil and Rosario? You heard that list of, you know, also Rams that I mentioned at second base. Organizationally speaking, the position has been a failure outside of, you know, the acquisition of uh, uh, Asdrubal Cabrera, et cetera, things of that nature. But organizationally speaking, it's been a complete failure. So Ahmed Rosario McNeil, is this your, you know, middle infield of the future? Are you happy? Yeah, as of right now, I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I you know, Daniel Murphy didn't have a, a real position, but he was basically given the left field position in 2009. Now, I I think that because of that, it probably factored into the 267 average that year that, that Daniel Murphy had coming off of the 300 August, September. Um, uh, I, 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 think that we see that, like, talking about Dominic Smith, you know, he hasn't been able to get any consistency because he's been uh, going back and forth between positions. Um, so, do I expect that out of McNeil? No, I actually think, you know, he's, he's much more natural of a second baseman than Daniel Murphy ever was. And so you already have that, does that, he does, we don't have to be worried about teaching him a new position. So he'll probably already have a better chance at replicating what he just did. And it seemed as if, I mean, we saw him long enough that the league was going to adjust to him. And and the league did adjust to him, but he adjusted right back. And there's there was just, it, I got to see him hit on Wednesday with that ground start. And it was the first time I had seen him hit. And he hit a ball down the line that, like, it looked like it was like Wade Boggs or, or, or Ted Williams. Like, he, he knew exactly where it was in the strike zone. And he was like, well, if I hit it in the strike zone right here, it's going to be placed, like, perfectly next to the third baseman to the point that, like, the third baseman couldn't do anything, couldn't move, the ball was already gone, and he was at second base. And I was so impressed with that just one play, one to hit one at bat, uh, having not seen him all, all uh, uh, summer. And so you have Jeff McNeil just naturally hitting right away. Amon Rosario cutting down on the swing. Um, he was a little violent on Wednesday, I remember, with the strikeout. <laughs> Excuse me. 
excuse me. So, but I, I think he got his average up to close to 260. I mean, I don't expect Ahmed Rosario to stay in Rafael Santana territory, but, you know, that's basically what we're talking about. It, you know, a, a batting average up the middle uh, on a on a world champion type team, you know, you can deal with the shortstop being at a 260-70 uh, batting average. Excuse me. I think Ahmed has a, a lot of room to grow. I was surprised by those nine home runs. Uh, and I think when he got his first home run, it threw his game off a little bit, and he was swinging for the fences too much with that uppercut. Um, so Rosario, I am not worried about at all. I think he developed exactly the way – I think he's developing exactly the way you want him to develop, you know, uh, fundamentals in the minor leagues aside. I, I think we'll, we'll – it's it's crazy for me to say, and and Gary, I I mentioned something like this earlier before you joined the podcast, but I can't believe I'm giving Jeff Wilpon some props. But like, I think <laughs> Jeff Wilpon's learning, and the the way he's communicate, maybe he's at least learning how to communicate better to the fans. But I I, I like some of the things he had to say about about the way he now as. You're not going to see Fred all that much anymore. Jeff's got some gray hairs on him. Maybe he's learned. Maybe he's become a. Maybe in becoming a better executive, I, I, I've said this before again. He's becoming a better human and a better executive. And I hope I'm right. And and but he keeps, you know, a conference like yesterday, a press conference like yesterday, and some other things we've discussed about the alumni relations and whatnot. Uh, Mike, if all of a sudden you see a Joan Payton statue in the offseason, look out. <laughs> well, Jeff, Jeff I, I turned on him again. I don't want to stray, but I turned on, on him again because, all right, they're seeking out a new executive, but he turns around in the same fashion and says, I still want to retain Rico, and I still want to retain Manai, and I still want to retain Ricciardi as part of my front office. That's called, you know, failure to let go. That's Linus going to college with his blanket, man. Okay, and that's why I'm turning on him again. They just don't get it. I don't want to. I don't want to stray. Rich, wrap up this middle infield before I blow a gasket. <laughs> well, that's funny. I, I, I'm here to help you, buddy. So, um, so with regard to Jeff McNeil, I, I mean, my question is, how do you not have him go to spring training as owning the second base job. I mean, what more could this man have done? 63 games, 225 plate appearance, official at-bats, 225 official at-bats, 63 games. That's more than a third of a season. He hits 329 with an on-base percentage of 381. He plays – his defense, as far as I'm concerned, was excellent. You know, that play he made in Boston – uh, you know, Sam, you referenced a play made behind DeGrom, but just the consistent play, turning the double play, the occasional great play, you put that in there with a 329 average and a 381 on base percentage. Why the hell are we having this conversation? This guy has to. You have, no, you have to give this guy the second base job unless he bats zero in spring training for an entire month. I mean, come on. The guy has earned it. You so you take your money and unfortunately we know it's going to be limited, and you spend it elsewhere. You don't have to view second base as a position needing upgrade right now. You have seen a fair sample size, and you have reason to believe 
this guy can do the job on the big league level. Sure, he's going to slump next year. Of course, he's going to go through slumps. But the fact is, you know, he's shown you enough. I mean, come on. We're not talking about, you know, a September call-up who had 40 at-bats here. We're talking about more than a third of a season. The Mets don't have too many guys with 329. They really don't in their entire history. So, you know, let, let's let this guy show us that, that he could do the job, and I think he can. And let's spend the money somewhere else. And as for up the middle, sure. I would love to see Rosario McNeil be the current-day Dykstra Backman. You know, you have your first and second hitters. One guy's got blazing speed. He gets on base, could steal the base. The other guy's a great bat handler, could hit behind him, help him manufacture some runs. Man, I'm loving this. I don't want to change it. I'm loving it. I want it to, I want it to continue for 15 years. So I, I love the idea. Second base. I'll tell, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Jeff McNeil would get in front of the ball in game four of the eighth inning World Series. Jesus. Sorry. Uh, trauma, trauma. <laughs> Let's try to uh, make a sweep, a quick sweep of first base because we'd be remiss if we didn't speak about Peter Alonso, tore up the Pacific Coast League, uh, and Binghamton for that matter, finished with over 30 home runs, over 100 RBIs. Let's talk about this quagmire we call first base. Is Dominic Smith still in competition for this job? Is this the safety net for Jay Bruce and Cespedes? We still, we, we, let's forget Wilma Flores. We have no idea what the Mets are going to do about him. But Peter Alonso obviously brings into question 40-man uh, roster spot rotation matters, etc., etc. Uh, what's your plan going forward at first base, Sam? I mean, the Dominic Smith's a sore subject for me because I don't think they've properly given him the uh, the, the opportunities to show what he can do. Um, you know, I, I think they're going to Mark Sanchez him, if you will. I, I uh, you know, where it's, it's – I'm not going to just blame it on not having talent. I think the organization is kind of fumbling the ball. Um, so I think that – uh, I don't know what to do with Dominic Smith. I mean, you you mentioned those Peter those Peter Alonzo numbers. I mean, how are you supposed to? What are you supposed to do with that? I mean, because this is you know he he struggled at the beginning of the Pacific Coast League, but like you said, he ended up on a tear with that. So, um, and Dominic Smith hasn't had the opportunity to just settle in. Uh, because I think Dominic Smith is an extremely talented player, and I've been looking forward to him since they drafted him. Uh, but at this point, with Jay Bruce and then the Pete Alonso factor, I I have to think you need to. I I mean, what are you going to keep him in AAA? No, you got to trade him. You have you have to if if you've decided that he is not your first baseman of the future. Uh, or you just – it's friendly competition in spring, in spring training. I mean, you know, with with the idea that if they don't hit, then Jay Bruce is the first baseman because we got plenty of outfield going on right now. I think that you either have to include him as talent in a trade. His uh, – uh, what he can bring back has now diminished, unfortunately. Uh, or you just – you do the, the uh, competitiveness uh, of spring training and, and see what's what. That's – I, it's the only thing I can think about with Dominic Smith because 
you know, uh, so so much for my uh, my my Dominic Smith customized t- uh, blue T-shirt last year. <laughs> Gary, I think you know this that when Peter Alonso got promoted, his slugging numbers stayed the same as they were in Binghamton, but his batting average and his on base percentage nosedive at you know an elevated level of pitching. Uh, so that that being said, first base. Well, that's not a surprise. I mean, uh, you know, he did make a, a jump. It's, it's the normal jump, but he did make a jump to a higher level. And uh, he struggled in, in the beginning, but uh, he came on strong at the end of the year, as Sam just said, and was really starting to dominate even in that league. So, um, you know, it, it's a tough – it's funny because we went from having nobody to play first base hardly – uh, getting rid of Duda, and then uh, you know Flores is going to play there, and then and then all of a sudden it's uh, we've got a, a boatload of people. Cespedes says that he wants to play. Uh, Bruce is playing it. Dominic Smith, Peter Alonso. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. I I I think I agree with Sam. I think the only thing they can do is is trade him somewhere along the line. But I do think he will come to camp. Um, I think he'll get a shot, and they may play him to showcase him and try to move him in a minor deal or, or even a major deal. He'd be a nice fill-in in a deal for some team that, that's looking for a cheap, young first baseman. I, I Look, I was not impressed. I think I've said it on this show before. I was not impressed with him last year. Um, but when he came, and I wasn't impressed with him in, in early in this year. Um, I was impressed with the shape he was in, but I was not in, in play, impressed with his play. Um, but when he came back up, it was a different player. It was like he felt he belonged or he felt more comfortable about being in the minors. And he played pretty darn well, and he hit pretty well. Um, the average doesn't show it, of course, because he didn't get enough consistency, but he was popping the ball. He was hitting the ball at all fields, and he was making some nice plays at first. And, you know, he screwed up some plays out in left field. Um, but then even looked a little bit better towards the end of the season playing out there. So um, I, it, it's, I'm glad I'm not the general manager uh, because it is a tough decision. Do you go with the youth and give him a shot? But then you have Jay Bruce. But you know, play Jay Bruce in right field, and why do you mix these guys around like Callaway was doing? I, I don't know what the answer. Is. And, and uh, before you throw it, before you throw it to Rich, um, I, I wanted to, to mention too. Uh, we were talking about the earlier in the season, the, the first part of the season. I totally spaced on the fact that um, he was injured and or wasn't giving the opportunities, and it goes back to this whole Sandy Alderson thing, and and how it's all speculation, and hypothetical. But you wonder, like, what was the relationship between Dominic Smith at the end of Sandy Alderson's tenure with yeah. Sandy Alderson? Uh, it, it because, because everything seems ponderous to use one of your favorite words, Mike. <laughs> you know, as to why, like, all right, well, he's, his injuries uh, healed up a bit. Why isn't he playing now? I don't know. Uh, I, it's a good point to be made. Uh, some of it could be coincidence. I don't know. But, Rich... The Quagmire first base. I got two questions for you, buddy. What do you want to see happen at first base, and what's gonna happen at first base? 
Wow, those are good questions. So, you know, we have this phrase at work, don't confuse effort with result. So I'm going to tweak that for first base with the Mets and say, let's not, con- let's not confuse quantity with talent. Um, there are a lot of bodies there. You know, you have Wilmer Flores, you have Dom Smith, you have Jay Bruce, you have Peter Alonzo. Um, but is any, of, is any of these guys the answer? And I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that question, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of bodies there, but are any of them quality major league first basemen? So here's my thought, Mike, to get, so what would I, what, what would I do? Um, Well, here's what I would like them to do. I think you have to start by non-tendering Wilmer Flores. I think um, his day has come and gone and let him go to the American league, be somebody's, you you know, emergency utility infielder, backup first baseman, DH. Let him let him do his thing. Dom Smith. Well, let's go to Jay Bruce next. <sighs> Jay Bruce. If somebody will take the contract, you know, I, I liked what um, what uh, John John said earlier. John Coppinger when he said that Melanson in San Francisco and and they they have a need for veteran outfielders. And, and power bat. So maybe you could work something out Melanson for Jay Bruce. So maybe you clear Jay out. I know the Mets don't typically eat money, but if you can do a swap on the money somehow, so you get rid of him. Now you have Dom Smith and Peter Alonzo. Um, okay. Let them duke it out in spring training, maybe. Let, may the better man win. That's possible. What I'd like to see them do, though, is, well, you know, I'd like to see them either – Commit to one player, Peter Alonzo or Dom Smith, totally commit to that player, or go get a first baseman, then you do this. You, Like I said earlier, you non-tender Flores, trade Bruce, you use Dom Smith and Peter Alonzo as trade chips you know, in a package or something else to get something of value, um, probably individual deals, of course, or maybe you trade one and keep the other as positional depth at AAA. I, I don't know. But they need to figure this out, and I think they have to figure it out by beginning to weed some people out. You cannot go into spring training with five or six guys and, and look at them all. That, that's not fair to anyone. And really what that means is if you, if you have five guys you think can play first base, you don't have anybody you think can play first base. You need a leading candidate, and I think you get there by starting to – some addition by subtraction. Um, in my opinion – I'd rather get an established first baseman, a good maybe a good right-handed bat. I'd get rid of all of them, to be honest with you. Alonzo might have value to another organization. He's just not an established right-handed major league bat. He goes. Dom Smith maybe goes in a separate deal. Non-tender Flores, trade Bruce somewhere, and give me a right-handed hitting first baseman who has a little bit of pop, can play the position defensively. So that's what I would do. But I think what they should do is begin to weed out this position and have fewer bodies coming into uh, Port St. Lucie. Now, Sam, question, uh, producer. I set the show for 90 minutes. That has elapsed. Are we still recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, to all you listeners out there, a little inner workings of the Mets podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, whoever's listening Please, right now, Mike and Rick, yeah, whoever's listening right now, Mike, Rich, and Gary, um, are going to be listening on the archive show. So apparently the way Blog Talk Radio works is that the live show feed stops after the time that – this is what I've heard from listeners. 
stops after the time that it it it, it ends the ninety minutes or whatever you set it at, then everything else post that will be listened to on the archive. Okay, and there was your technical moment of the day. Uh, so let's uh, <laughs> let's wrap up with uh, Mickey Calloway. Let's give him a grade. I give him. I'm I'm struggling between a B minus and a C plus. Uh, I started out the day with a B minus. I'm down to a C plus. Uh, I think I'm being generous. Uh, and and let's by all means begin the rant against the Wilpons. And I will throw it out there again. Uh, you know he already stated he wants this triumvirate on board, regardless of the next executive. And my question is. What capable, credible, confident, confident executive would accept this job with a litany of of uh, prerequisites? Who, who in their right mind would do that? And that's why at times I feel like this search for a new executive is complete folly. They had me there for a second. But Sunday, Jeff blew it. And now he's right back at square one trying to reestablish credibility again with me. So, Sam, you might give him a pass, but he blew it all over again. Gary, what say you? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I kind of am with Sam on this one. I'm going to give him a pass. I, I just think that, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I spoke to somebody, I interviewed him a number of years ago, and uh, they had some connections, and they said that they told me that if uh, Jeff Wilpon had control of the team completely, he was not afraid to spend money. I take that as you will. I don't know how true it is that it was Fred that was putting a kibosh on things. Fred has gotten older and kind of gotten away. Uh, I think Sam said it before. Rich, uh, Jeff is getting more control of of the the team. Um, I, I you know I, I I just think that I he he said he'd like to keep these three guys because he knows these three guys. Um, I, you know, I can understand that from an owner's point of view. I, 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 it doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. And I, and I'm sure there'll be somebody that would want it, that, that would want the job and be willing to take these, these little demands and, uh, but he'll have demands of his own. They are a way to isolate people as well in an organization where they can't get to you. And, and, it's going to be a negotiation. It's going to be, well, okay, I'll take these guys. But, you know, they can't do this or they can do that, and, and this is where their power lies. And you can move them in different areas. Uh, Omar Minayo came back and put into, uh, well, I don't know what his title was, player development or whatnot. Um, there are ways to handle these things, and um, I, I think that's what he's looking for. And, you know, he, he said he wanted to, to keep Mickey Calloway, and, and, and I can see it too. You don't want to. The guy improved in the second half, as did the team, and uh, he looked lost. Granted, in May and June, after the eleven and one start, but 
I think he righted the ship. I still would like to see someone in there from a National League. But now that they've had a year in the National League, maybe they understand it better. Uh, there was no glaring errors, and I'm talking about, like, lineup. You know, you could say about pitching changes or this guy should have started or what. Uh, but, you know, nothing along that line. Everything went smoothly. Um somewhat and they seem to play hard for him. They like him and they seem to play hard for him. The pitching staff, it's hard to, to deny what they've done. Bullpens are funny. I mean, bullpens, you know, you never know what you're going to get. You don't even know date night to night what you're going to get from a bullpen. So you can't really hold it feet to the fire on the bullpen. Um, you know, I think Callaway, I'm going to give him a C leaning towards a B minus simply because I think he did uh he came back and uh and learned on the job and, and like I said, I, I I have to wonder loudly influence Sandy Alderson had on him because he seemed to be a uh, embrace an older style baseball or or uh what we remember baseball to be once Sandy left and got away from uh uh, you know the hitters were more aggressive. They were, like I said, they were bunting. They were hit and run, trying to steal a base. They were, they were creating runs. Uh, maybe it was the personnel that came up, or maybe it was just a different change in philosophy on his part. But whatever it was, uh, it worked a lot better than the old hit and run, uh, the old home run, wait for the three run home run, and all of that nonsense that they were doing before. So, uh, uh, you know, and and. Look, the job they did with, with David Wright uh, as far as the Wilpons and uh, the organization was top-notch, second to none. So um, I, I'm going to give him a pass on this. And here, and here's another thing uh, to go along with what Gary said. I'll just ask, when did, did uh, Sandy Alderson take his leave? Was it June? I, it was. It was June, right? So, Mike, yeah. wouldn't you say though, like as as much as you, I understand that you just want a clean house and you want you want um, uh, you know, you want to start start fresh with an executive who's separate who's separate from what Wilpon, what Jeff is doing. But can't you say with those particular people that he wants to retain? I mean, isn't aren't the results there? Not just the uh, effort. You you have to compartmentalize. What I'm saying is so much for autonomy. On the one hand, Jeff is saying my next executive is going to have a complete autonomy, and in the same breath, he's saying, "Oh, by the way, here's a list of four people I'm giving you right off the bat that you got to find a place for." So my question no, again I, I, is, I, I probably, what executive I, I in his right it. mind is going to accept this job with all these stipulations? I want somebody with more of a backbone. Is he coming? Is this person coming here to be a mere puppet? That's my point. I want the truth be truth be told. I want Omar and I to stay in the organization uh, as a developmental, you know, in a developmental capacity. I want him to stay. My issue is with autonomy and meddling. He's saying he's going to give this executive autonomy, and in the same breath, he's saying you got to keep these three executives and that manager. What if this new executive doesn't like them and say this doesn't? you know, fit in with my vision of how I'm supposed to perform my function. So my question again is, 
what kind of an executive are we getting? Damn, I blew my stack. Rich, save me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I hear you, Mike, but but I I think if you listen closely to what Jeff Wilpon said yesterday, I think he didn't actually say that. What he said was, he said that, Oh, and this is where you're right. He said ownership would like Mickey Calloway to stay. Ownership likes, you know, would like Rico and, and Manaya and Richard. You know, we think, we think that, you know, they're good organizational guys. But he also said that they're part of the failure. He said that the three-headed GM and he himself, Jeff Wilpon, are part of the failure. And that has to be factored in. And then someone asked him, are those guys safe? meaning the three GMs and Mickey, and he said no. He said those guys are not guaranteed safe here. He said the new person coming in will have to make that assessment. Now, and and you kind of want to say, oh, okay, so you are going to let the new, new guy make all the calls. Hmm, we were wrong, Jeff. But then the next thing he says is ownership would like them to stay, interpret that as you wish, but he said there are no guarantees. These guys are all part of the, of the failure. I think he used his exact words. So I don't know that he said these guys are guaranteed to come back. The new, he, In fact, what he did say also was the new GM should not be hamstrung by having people who have to be here. He, and he actually said, you know, you can't bring a new guy in and say, you know, bring us to the promised land, but you're hamstrung by having to take on these people. So while it was a bit of double talk, he certainly did not come out and say, these guys will be here, the three-headed GM and Mickey. He, he, be, he went so far as to say the exact opposite, that they are not guaranteed to be here. But, of course, he backed it up with that kind of wishy-washy, you know, ownership would like them to be here, whatever that means. But um, So interpret that as you may. And, you know, if you want to latch on to the ownership would like them to be here part and say that's his subtle way of saying that the new GM is inheriting these people, then he's wrong. Then he shouldn't be doing that. And it's completely bullshit to to be doing that. But if you want to interpret it as, okay, you know, maybe maybe he is giving the new GM full authority. It's all, how I think, how you interpret those somewhat duplicitous comments that, that, that will, um, you know, that will sort of make – make your interpretation of it. I want to throw one last thing in, then I'll let yes, you go, sorry, Sam, but sorry. one last thing. So if all of that is true and the new, the three GMs are not assured of being here, they're part of the failure and all of that, why in the living hell is John Rico on the interview panel? Okay, go ahead, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, well, oh, no, I was, I, what I was going to, to correlate it to and kind of bringing it back around to my shameless plug for Bedford and Sullivan, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Dodgers story. Um, uh, when Larry, when Larry McPhail came on board in 1938, he did have the opportunity to fire Burley Grimes, who was an old pitcher for the Dodgers and now managing the Dodgers, but he stayed on for one year. Now, mind you, he eventually got replaced by Leo DeRocher, but Mike, you knowing that information, you know, maybe that's, kind of where we're going, where the GM might come in, he may keep Mickey Callaway, he may not, he may want to assess the situation with Mickey Callaway and watch him for a year or he gets rid of him but maybe it's a situation like that going off of what Rich said 
my own my only answer is show me. It's my only answer because uh, there are, there are also things that he said which tell me things will remain the same, such as a budget. Well, we give him a budget and it goes up from there. Why don't you just give him the budget? And I don't want to go on forever. Uh, Gary, you want to jump in? <laughs> well, I, I, as far as the budget goes, I think they are giving him the budget, but everything is, uh, you know, if, if he gets a, he gets a phone call and says, "Like I can get Mike Trout," you know, do you want to pay the money? And uh, you know, it, it's going to take us over the budget, but it's a deal you make. So that kind of thing, I think. I don't think anybody has a set budget in baseball. They have goals, and uh, they say, let's stay within these goals. We want to stay within these goals. But I, I think there's a certain flexibility there, and I think that's all he was saying with that. Um, and, again, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. and uh, I can't believe I'm defending them this much. But, uh, you know, he said some things that I was very interested in that, that – uh, sounded right to me for a change. It was refreshing to hear, and um, we'll see what happens. It, 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 it's what's gonna, you know, a new GM could come in and say, you know what, I got a manager in place. The guy was in his first year as a manager. Uh, everybody raves about this guy. The pitching staff was good with with the crew. Let me see what he can do, and. He may want to see it firsthand. Um, so uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just hope, I just hope I'm just I just hope I'm just in a bad mood because Sam is my witness. I you know I was leaning in defense of Jeff not more than two podcasts ago. Uh, so maybe I'm just in a bad mood and I interpreted his words wrong. But I'm sticking with. You know, show me, show me, uh, because like Rich said, it wasn't a, in a in a backdoor sort of way. And we would like, you know, to for you to consider keeping these guys. Look, I need more conviction. Maybe that's my issue. I just need more conviction. All right, maybe his conviction has been elevated uh, recently, but I need more. And maybe you can keep these guys if you find it in your heart. I don't need that. I really don't. And that and that's what really ticked me off. That being said, it's nine forty six. Thanks, Mike. Um all right, so what's on my mind? Um you know, I I'm strangely much more excited and much more optimistic than most people would be after seventy seven and eighty five. I think that's a common sentiment among the fan base. Uh, I think we've covered why a lot of us feel that way, you know, the four starters, um the fact that the team, you know, was eight games over 500 in the second half, you know, a lot of things to be positive about. Um, I think it's it's cautious optimism because there's still work to be done. I mean, when you have to remake a bullpen, that, that's not a little thing. That, that's a lot of a lot of people you have to bring in. So um, there's a there's a significant amount of work to be done. So, but given the second half, given the pitching, I think cautious optimism is in order. I, I do agree with what everyone has said, which is that this is a very, very important offseason in the history of this franchise because they can either capitalize on the great starting pitching they have and do something with it or 
they could revert to old habits and not do anything with it and, and uh, continue to be the Jets, as Sam said, where, you know, you're never the worst team in the league, but you're never good enough to make the playoffs. So a lot going on, new GM, crossroads for the organization. I'm cautiously optimistic, but a lot of work to do. That's my point. Sam, what's on your mind? Perennial contender. It was a phrase that Jeff Wilfon used, and I think we're almost there. I know, uh, you know, I've we're, we're a little fickle when it comes to this team, and, and and you know, my my biggest thing was I was skeptical that they could ever find some uh, consistent success with the Wilfons, and I'm obviously, like you say, Mike, show me. But for some reason, like Rich said, you know, I'm I am optimistic, and I'm also going to Sandy Alderson. You know, I had always said that he was brought in foundation with this franchise who had always been so reactionary. And as much as I think the game caught up to him from at the major league standpoint, and also it, it sucks to hear that we think that some of these players might have been fundamentally challenged down below, but there's still, there, there still seems to be more of an organizational uh, cohesion overall than there was before Sandy Alderson joined the team. And that was, I always said, was going to be his biggest legacy with this team, and I think it still is going to be. And I think one of the reasons why we're so optimistic is because, and and optimistic for Jeff Wilpont, for the words Jeff Wilpont says too, is because the cement may be hardening. The foundation may be settling, finally. A lot of growing pains, and like I said earlier, this was a transitional year that we kind of fooled ourselves into being a contending one. I I think us as a franchise are almost there where it's not just roll your eyes all the time and everybody else around the league is being like, what's up with, what's up with the Mets? Jesus, the Mets, same old Mets, same old Mets. I think we're almost there. And and it it was... You know, two things we got out of this season, transitionally, we got a new manager, we got the best pitcher in baseball, and we got David, the end of David Wright's career. There's, there's, there's a new era starting next year, and very upset that I don't get to see that David, David Wright home run swing anymore. But it is what it is. Stay la vie, and we move on. And I can't wait for 2019. The further we get away from Sandy Alderson, the more confused I am about his tenure. I think, uh, I, no, really, I mean that in complete honesty. Uh, I think it's a tale of two different roles. Uh, and once upon a time, I thought I could compartmentalize the two roles that he had, A, saving the organization, uh, i.e. keeping them afloat, and B, being a general manager and turning around the organization. And, uh, again, that that is getting blurred in hindsight, uh, but I'm just going to say that this next executive hire to me is going to speak volumes. Before any transaction is even made, the next person they hire to me is going to speak volumes. I'll decide then. Uh, Gary, anything on your mind? Well, uh, I just want to say that uh, thanks for having me on again, and uh, it's going to be an interesting offseason. As Rich and Sam so eloquently put it, it, you know, we're optimistic, 
and uh, there's reason to be optimistic and hopeful that next year will be better with the performance of the second half of the team and hopefully health stays with them the whole season. And um, it is optimism with what uh, Jeff Wilpon said, and we'll see if he carries that out. It's going to be an interesting off season. And isn't that the beauty of the game of baseball? We, we want to just, you know, hang on everything all off season, uh, looking for every little tidbit of information that comes out and um, it's what we love and what we do. And it's for, uh, you know, our uh, side light here. And uh, that's about it. I, I just, I think it's going to be a great off season to uh, keep your eye on the Mets and see what they do. And by the way, their minor league uh, is even improving. So things are going in the right direction all over the place. You know, I, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you brought that up because I need some consistency there, too, from rookie level on up. I need all those managers working off of the same play sheet. And at every level, I need that manager adding just another tool in, in that player's toolbox. But I, I, I need I need consistency from the bottom all the way through the top. Uh, I, I don't want these various teams and affiliates operating on their own and not communicating with each other. They all need a, a, one standard operating procedure. And that's why this next executive, to me, will speak volumes if you want to pick up on that, Rich. I think I think you're right, Mike. I think how they make this choice um, will speak volumes, like you said. I mean, they're, they're going to go outside the organization. Okay, we know that. Are they going to go Theo Epstein-like, you know, the young sabermetrics guy, you know, the, the trendy guy? Are they going to do something more traditional? Um, how much autonomy? I've heard, Mike, you know, y- your words have been taken seriously. I've heard word that um, they might be considering a chief uh, baseball opera- uh, vice president of baseball operations and a GM. So do they do that? Um, I think all these options are on the table. They've all been discussed. And how they go about this, like I said, I, I really believe this might be one of the most critical off-seasons in the organization's history, and it starts with this particular move that they're going to make. And um, my only concern is when, when Wilpon said yesterday that they hope to have someone in place by the GM meetings, it's like, um, no, you have to have someone in place by the GM meetings. That's where this work get, all starts getting done. Then Jim Duquette said Sandy Alderson was hired on October 29th of 2010, the week before the GM meetings, that you have to have someone in place because this, the offseason is a process. You have to have leadership in place to go through that process. So it's making the hire, making the right hire, making the right hire in time, all those things. Um, uh, two things, two, two things uh, first off, a uh, slight joke. Um, talk about a Hall of Fame resume if he could bring a world championship to the Cubs, the Red Sox, and the Mets. Go for it, Jeff. Get the O. Obviously, that's not going to happen, but, you know, I can dream, can't I? Which is a great song I heard today by the Andrews sisters. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, the, uh, I, I was going to say that it kind, of, it kind of got glossed over in the earlier part of the podcast, but Rich said it. And it sounded so beautiful to my ears when he was like, "Get!" I think you said something like, "Get Corey Oswalt down from Syracuse," and I was like, "Oh my God, that's, 
<laughs> no, it's a great point. That's a great point. Expand upon. No, but that's, that, that's if you're if you're uh, looking for me to expand on the GM stuff, I, I don't think I really can go any other direction. I I think, like you guys said, it's going to speak wonders, um, and 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 going with what something you said, Mike. Show me everything that we've been giving Jeff Wilpon props for might fall all apart when he hires the GM. But I really would like them to go in a direction of the Theo Epstein style because, I mean, it's worked pretty considerably for two of the most perennial loser franchises in the history of, of, of Major League Baseball. Um, I would group us into that category as well. I like to say that we have 108 years of losing packed into uh, 57 years. Um, so – yeah, you know, like, what what was it that, that uh, Jeff wants analytics and, and uh, Fred wants, you know, old school scouting style? Well, I think, like we've been saying, I mean, with all due respect to Fred, I think it's time to segue. You start us off with the final word, Sam. Go right ahead, my friend. The final word is there's a reason why they call it the hot stove. It keeps you warm, um, but in, in this day and age, the winter doesn't even is, – is still, weirdly enough, part of the summer. There's just constantly constant information coming in and out. You're not just reading anymore the, the little, the little uh, uh, rectangular, you know, a rectangular box on a, news, a newspaper clipping about what Jeff McNeil is doing or, or what Casey Stengel is doing or what Dolph Camilli is doing or – or, or Mel Ott, or whoever, whatever era ball player from New York history you want to pick, you know. People were still paying attention to spring training, but there's so many more eyes. I mean, uh, we're paying attention to the hot stove, but there's so many more eyes now and so much more coverage that there's no reason why, sad as I am to not have Mets baseball anymore, I'm excited for the winter process to begin for this specific franchise. Um, I'm going to enjoy the playoffs. I always do. Uh, I will watch them as much as I possibly can. I always love it at the beginning with the division series where you get four games in one day, back to back to back to back. That's always pretty cool. Um, And I almost get sad when the championship series comes and there isn't back to back to back to back games. I'm just like, can't we just keep having these eight teams playing each other? But, I just I like baseball. I like baseball, and so that that's my last word. Bring on the winter, Rich. My last word's confused. Um, my emotions are confused. You know, sad because the season's over. Um, I've been like that my entire life. The last day of the season, whether it's the last day of the World Series on those rare occasions, you know, for the Mets or when the Mets don't make the playoffs, the last day of the regular season, there's always a sadness, but. Excitement as well. Um, excitement for the reasons we just talked about. There's some reason for optimism. It's going to be a very active off season with a lot going on, and that's obviously very compelling. So it's sort of like a cauldron of emotions. But um, let's get it started. You know, 2019 is only going to get here after the off season of 2018 plays itself out. So let's get going. Let's get to business. Let's get down to work. My final word is math, as in arithmetic. Over the playoffs, I'm going to be tabulating my own statistics. 
see if I can come up with some magic formula or some common denominator for success because all we have left are the best teams in baseball and may the best team win. That said, Mr. Mack, uh, please, your final word and, you know, take some time and tell us where we can find your work, etc. please. <laughs> okay. I guess my final word is optimism. I'm, I'm, uh, going to be optimistic about that. The, uh, you know, the will ponds make the right decision. I'm going to be optimistic that the Mets can stay healthy next year. Uh, and I'm going to be optimistic that it's going to be a fun year next year and better than this year. And, uh, though I'll be another year older, uh, you know, you can't have everything. So, uh, that's, that's what I'm going to do this winter. I hate the winter. Uh, can't stand the cold, but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Here we are. Uh, anyway, uh, you can uh, listen to me at Mets Musings, and it's available at MetsMusings.com. I'm on every week. Uh, also, it's on YouTube, the video version, or live on Sportscast.net, I think it is. Uh, I don't know about that one. And also, um, if you like golf, please take a listen to Talking Golf with Gary. It's at TalkingGolfWithGary.blogspot.com. Uh, again, uh, just started that up after four years. It's two years. And uh, one more, I know, uh, <laughs> going on and on, but the Baseball Talk radio show, uh, I am hosting that now, and that's available on the uh, Baseball Talk Radio Network, BaseballTalkRadio.com, BaseballPodcast.net. So that's where you can hear me if you want to hear me some more. On behalf of Sam and Rich, Gary, thank you so very much for your time once again. We love having you on the show. You're always welcome. Uh, and that concludes uh, a Metsian Podcast 2018 end of season roundtable discussion. And Sam, as we like to end our shows, there's only one thing to say at this point, right? Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good evening, fellas. Good night. Good night. <laughs>